Well, we're going to begin this series in Hosea tonight, and uh, I haven't quite finished outlining the whole book. I have a pretty close idea of how that's going to go. It'll be, it'll be several weeks, and uh, we'll see how far along this, this evening we get with, uh, with the portion that I've, uh, I've bitten off, as they say. So uh, let's see how this first chapter goes tonight. Hosea is a, is a, a difficult book in a lot of ways. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a marvelous story. Uh, and the, the, the whole point of it ought not to be missed. Um, and so we'll, we'll try not to miss it as we work through it over the coming weeks into the months. Well, let's read those first verses, chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 1 of chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name Not My People, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it should be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. They shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word for us here tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us your truth, not just in the didactic, propositional fashion that we read so much in the New Testament, 
but in the poetry of the, of the wisdom literature, in the historical narratives, in the stories of the lives of men and women. Your redemptive history is spelled out before us so vividly. May we not miss it. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you see there, the title of the whole series is Hosea, A Unique Calling. If you've read the book of Hosea, you know why I gave it that title. This is uh, one of the most unique situations we find in the Bible. For, uh, for a subtitle, you could put on it, The Long-Suffering Love of God. If you, want to, if you want to have a subtitle to Hosea, A Unique Calling, because that's really what's going on in this book is the long-suffering love of God. God uses in this book one of the most blatant examples known to humanity, blatant example of infidelity, and he does it in order to call his people out of their sin, to call his people out of their infidelity. Um, When I typed into my notes this week, whore and whoredom, do you know what happened? Do you know what word did? It highlighted and it colorized and it put flashing lights on those words. And when I clicked on it with the cursor, it said, your audience may find these terms highly offensive. That's the culture we live in. That's our, that's our desensitized, desensitized, S-I-N, culture. That those archaic words like whore and adultery and whoredom, that, that may offend someone. You don't want to say words like that. I'm surprised that didn't do like my Siri does when I'm talking messages to people. And it Siri doesn't know some of the words I say. And she makes some suggestions as to what that word should be. And it's not. If I'd have wanted to say that word, I would have said that word. So I have to be careful before I hit that send button to be sure I read them or else I may be sending a message that's not intended to send. Well, we're just going to stick with the text and we're going to use the words God used and we're going to look at how blatant this situation is. And I want to remind you as I, I have many times before, that when we look at the historical narratives in the Bible, those narratives aren't put there simply to provide us with factual information, you know, events, people. That's not the point. Yes, God, God gets the history right. The holy men that he used to, to write his word, they got it right. But that's not really the point. The point is what's, 
What's God teaching us? In other words, what's the theology? We saw this many years ago now when I preached through the book of Ruth. Ruth is a beautiful story. Ruth is not nearly as offensive to the senses as this book is. But it's the same theology. Hopefully you've read both of the books and you know, yeah, that's right. It's, whether it's the book of Ruth and that beautiful story of a daughter-in-law who travels with her mother-in-law back to her homeland. And God provides a kinsman redeemer for her, even though she didn't deserve it because she was a Gentile. She was not my people. God uses that language here in naming these two children, and those were terms that the Jews used for the Gentiles. Not my people. Those are not God's people. We're God's people. And now God is saying, no, you're not my people either. My people don't live like you live. And he's going to show them that in this really horrific, lurid story of Hosea. Now the thing we're going to see right up front is that God instructs Hosea to go out and marry someone that he ordinarily would not have even considered marrying. And someone that he ordinarily should not have married. So we don't read this book and say, oh, well this is a good, ex- this is a good example of, of why our sons and daughters should date unbelievers. No, that's not what this book's about. So don't go there. Because there's too many passages in the Bible that tell us contrary to that. And God doesn't contradict himself. He has given poor Hosea a horrific task. An onerous task. One that he would not have chosen and didn't want to do, but he did because God said to do it. No doubt when God said this, he said, Lord, Leviticus 21. Don't you remember the Leviticus 21? You couldn't stop saying, don't marry whores. And now you're telling me to? And then what about Paul? Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And we don't even have to go to Paul's writing in the letter to the Corinthians where he says that we're not to be unequally yoked. Well, this is as unequally yoked as you can get right here. And yet God does it. To teach some theology to a people who'd forgotten their theology. And were living contrary to the good theology God had taught them. Now that's the hard part of the story. The ultimate end of the story is we get glimpses of it. It's like we saw in Isaiah. 
You've seen this in, in so many of the Old Testament books when I've preached through them. God gives these harsh warnings. He gives these ultimatums. And then in the midst of it, when things are getting terrible, the oppressors are coming upon them. Sin is wreaking havoc among them. He gives us these little glimmers, these little, these little glimpses of hope of what he's going to do, how he's going to redeem the situation. And we read it just now, didn't we? Here are these three children, and the portent of their names is not good. Right? Jezreel, because I'm going to destroy Israel. The second one, no mercy. Third one, not my people. And then God comes back and says, yet, I'm going to remember my covenant. I'm going, to have, I'm going to have children. I'm going to have spiritual descendants beyond counting. Numbers, he says. Number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured. Children of the living God is what they will be called. Children of Judah and the children of Israel should be gathered together. He's just said, Israel's going away. And now he says, and I'm going to bring them back. And then he says, I'm going to change names. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have no mercy. Now, it's going to get bad again. We're going to get to that. And that's the way it's going to ebb and flow all the way through Hosea. Now, let's remember this. As we saw in Isaiah most recently in our Old Testament series, God uses warnings... To bring about repentance. Let me say that again. God uses the stern warnings with the ultimate purpose of bringing about repentance. So when you're reading the Bible and you get to these warnings, if you do this, you shall surely die. Don't say, well, I've done it. I'm just going to die. I'll just eat, drink, and be merry. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to die. That's not the point. The point is, repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to the one who is full of mercy and full of grace. And that's the message of Hosea, the long-suffering love of God. There's three points. Let's see how far we get. Hosea the prophet. Let's talk about him first. Hosea is... Uh, is, is Another version of Joshua, which is another version of Jesus. The root meaning is to save. Hosea in this, in this book represents God. He's, he's the God figure. Gomer represents the people, the sinners, the despicable ones. We know based on verse 1... That this is 8th century. One, one of the fine, fine Old Testament scholars of recent decades says that at the very time when the kings of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, 
and the and Judah, the southern kingdom, were outshone by the brilliant prophets of that time. A lot of our children have studied the charts here on Wednesday nights in Sunday school of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, and you know that you can you can number the good kings on about one hand, and all the rest of the kings on north and south were rotten to the core. But not so among the prophets. The prophets were brilliant. The prophets were shining lights in the midst of all this rottenness. At the very time that Hosea's writing, you got Isaiah and Micah writing to the southern kingdom, Judah. Now you have Hosea, Jonah, and Amos to the northern kingdom. So that kind of sets, sets you in the context of who's, who's doing what. He tells you who the kings were right there in verse 1. The work of a prophet was hard work. Just what I've read already would tell you that it was not something that you'd want to do. If you're familiar with the prophetic call, as you've read through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others, you know that almost to the man, the prophets were, set, were told this. I want you to go for me. I want you to proclaim the truth. Tell them what I say. Oh, and by the way, they're not going to listen. They're not going to pay attention. I'm going to tell you, how many of you would take that job? Yep. I want you to go take over the division and nobody wants to work for you and nobody's going to do what you ask them to do. And you're going to get fired or killed before it's over. That's probably not a job you'd take, right? You'd probably think, well, there's there's better job somewhere. I think I'll go work somewhere else. Where they want me. But that's the way it was for the prophet. How about Isaiah? Isaiah was told that very thing. Go preach. They're not going to listen. They're not going to change. Having eyes to see and ears to hear. Not going to see, not going to hear. Later on, Isaiah is told, Isaiah, we're going to make a point. For the next three years, you're going to walk around in your underwear. Now, this was a long time before Michael Jordan could do television commercials in underwear. Underwear were a whole lot scantily uh, or more scanty back then. It was, uh, it was a sign of being undignified. You had lost everything. You'd lost your mind. You'd lost hope. You'd lost everything you had. You were down to your underwear. And that's what he was told to do. And that was to show Judah that they were going to be captive and led astray. They're going to lose everything, including their dignity. Remember we read in Isaiah at one point that Assyria 
would come. And they would lead many from the surrounding cities. Jerusalem never fell to them. But to those others, they'd be led in the future. At some time, they'd be led into captivity with fish hooks in their noses. That's not very dignified. Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told, Ezekiel, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cause your wife to get sick, grow very sick, and she's going to die and you do not mourn it. No sackcloth, no ashes. No crying. Stiff upper lip. You're going to go about business like nothing has happened. Like that's just ordinary. Loved ones die and it doesn't matter. It's just life. Be stoic about it, Ezekiel. And you know why? Well, he tells. He tells the people because the people... When, when Ezekiel's wife dies and Ezekiel just walks around like nothing's happened. Ezekiel, we heard your wife died. Oh, yeah. No big deal. Well, did you have a funeral? No. Why should I? Well, we know you loved her. Ah, I can get another one. Why? Why would God tell Ezekiel to do that? Well, here's why, because Ezekiel then tells the people. The word of the Lord came to me saying, speak to the house of Israel. This is what the Lord God says. Behold, I'm about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, that which is precious in your eyes and the longing of your soul and your sons and your daughters whom you've left behind will fall by the sword. In other words, they're going to be taken over and their sons and daughters are going to die right before their faces. They're going to witness all this. And you will do just as I've done, Ezekiel said. You'll just go about your business like, what's another kid? I got 20. What's two or three? You will not cover your mustache. You will not eat the bread of other people. Your turbans will be on your heads. Your sandals on your feet. You'll not mourn, you'll not weep, but you will rot away in your guilty deeds and you will groan to one another. He says, that's what this sign is all about. You're going to die in here. All the while, nothing affects you. Your heart is so hardened by sin that you don't care about anyone else. It's just about you and your life and your day-to-day going here and there. That's what my life has been an example of to you, Ezekiel said. Well, if it could get worse, Hosea was given the worst root, wasn't he? I don't think there's a man or a woman here can imagine if you were given a single option, you're to marry and you have to marry the most wicked, adulterous woman you can find. That's the only person you can have in this life. She's not going to be faithful to you. She's going to break your heart. She's going to have children by other men. 
She's going to live in and out of the house. She'll take what you give her, but that's it. I mean, think about that. You'd just about rather not live, wouldn't you? Now, sadly, probably in this room, there's somebody sitting here, at least one someone, who's had that happen to them. A wife leave them or commit adultery or a husband commit adultery, leave them. If you've ever known anyone like that, you know that they don't take it with a stiff upper lip. It's not something easy to take. And that's what Hosea is instructed to do. And all of this to show how God was married to a despicable wife. Israel. To show Israel who they were. So, that takes us to the second major point tonight. Hosea, the agonizing type. Again, let me say, God's showing himself to be the offended one in all this. Hosea is to Gomer as God is to Israel. And as we saw with Isaiah and Ezekiel, Hosea is called to assume an agonizing role in order to make a point to God's people. As Hosea would be heartbroken and sad, even embarrassed by Gomer's infidelity, so was God by Israel's infidelity. And I'm going to say this. Churches, God's people, God's, God's public people can still cause him that kind of anguish and embarrassment and agony today. I mean, folks, look, the church of this day in the 8th century B.C., is they're not the only church that can do this. Sin is sin is sin, and sin in every generation can produce the same effects. Hosea's agony is further exhibited in the birth of his child and those of Gomer. Now here there's, there's scholarship all over the spectrum here. When it says, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, some believe that he was actually instructed to go marry a woman who'd already had a number of children out of wedlock and to adopt those children. Some believe that no, she was already committing the act of adultery and fornication and maybe had been married. Maybe she was like the, the, the woman at the well. She'd been married three or four times and the man she was currently living with wasn't her husband at all. And God calls Hosea to go marry her and then to have children. Whichever it is, it's awful. Whichever it is, it, it's a picture of God in Hosea. How that he, he takes people in their sin and adopts them 
as his sons and daughters. But notice how this works out. In verse 4, the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. That's the firstborn. If you go back to verse 3, you read, So he went, he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So let's just talk about Jezreel for a moment. As his agony is amplified by the names, in the names of these children. Name him Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Israel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now see, you have to go back in, in history to understand this Jezreel. In the name itself, there's nothing really bad. In fact, we're going to go on over in chapter 2 and we're going to find that it's a good thing. But the way the Lord's using Jezreel here is to remind them of something historical, something that happened in their past. Jezreel had once been the setting, the valley of Jezreel, the setting for Gideon's victory. And so it's just, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a symbol. The valley of Jezreel was a symbol to Israel of, of, of victory, of their glory days. But when you read on in the history, it didn't last because a new king came, king of Israel, Jehu, and we're told that he was a man of blood and he had killed his predecessor, Joram, and the king of Judah, Ahaziah, in the valley of Jezreel. And so this firstborn son... He was to call Jezreel to remind them of this disastrous past that they have. That's not the kind of name you want to put on a son. So that every time you say it, every time people hear it, they think of bloodshed and loss and demise. But that's exactly what God did. But then he ups the ante on that. It's like he goes incrementally to make points beyond each of the the previous. The second one is like a punctuation on the prophecy. He names names her Lo-Ruhamah, which literally is not having obtained mercy or is the... ESV translates it straight, just call her name, no mercy. Now, who's going to give no mercy? Well, God, he's the dispenser of mercy. So God's saying, look, I've extended, 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 and there is no mercy now. Israel, God's people, living as they were in lust. Notice what he says, though. It's like she conceived again and bore a daughter. By the way, if, if, if you're paying attention, you probably noticed the first one 
Jezreel, we're told that she conceived and bore him a son. The next two, we're not told that. After Jezreel, we're just told that she conceived and bore a child. The suggestion there is that she has either gone back to her wicked ways already, having children by other men, if she ever quit doing that sort of thing, even after she married him, or she became something of a, of a prostitute. But the setting here is such that it, sa- it suggests to us that, no, she was already, she was already a, a wife of whoredom, and she was already living that way. He, he marries her, and now he's had a son, and now she's going back to her ways. And as we're going to find out in chapter 2, she goes away. She leaves him. There's going to be an old episode about that next week. No mercy, for I'll have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Then notice it's like a little jab, but I will have mercy on Judah. Your southern cousins, they're mine. I'll have mercy on them. I'll put an I will have mercy on them. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war, by horses or by horsemen. In other words, it's not going to be military. They may fall to captivity, but I'm going to be their God. And I will be with them and I'll care for them. Not by might, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Notice again, no mention of Hosea here. And the Lord called, said, call his name, not my people, lo me, For you are not my people and I am not your God. You say, but they were. They were his covenant people. Yeah, by name they were. By name they were his people. One commentator puts it this way, God might be nominally Israel's national God, but since he is not for sharing, the presence of other gods flatly denied the relationship. Now we have to pause there, don't we? Because we can live like that. We can be nominally Christians. You have a lot of friends. If you were asking them, are you a Christian? Oh, Yes. Do you believe in God? Yes, yes. God of the Bible even. But when you get down under that, under that superficiality, it's just a nominal relationship. It's, it's their Christians nominally, not really. There is not that faith we, we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 last Sunday morning. And there's not that devotion and love to that gospel that we saw last Sunday night. And that's who these people were. They were just nominally God's people. 
Let me remind you again without diminishing the severity of this warning that God's messages of warning have the intention of bringing people to change and repentance. We don't use God's warnings to beat people over the head and drive them deeper into their sin. We use God's warnings to help our loved ones and our friends see that there's hope for them. That God cares. Just like parents who warn their children. It's not because you want them to get hurt. It's because you want them not to be hurt. We taught our children when they were learning to ride their bicycles. The neighborhood we lived in was a wonderful neighborhood for bike riding over in Greenville. And this was the rule. You can ride on the street while mom and dad are out in the yard. But if you hear us say, get off your bikes, you get off right then, right there, and stay still. You don't say why, we'll explain why. But by the time you say why and we get to you, it may be too late. Because see, we may see the car coming and you don't. The warning was not to keep them from having fun on the bicycle. The warning was to keep them from being harmed. And so let's keep that in mind as we work through this. It becomes evident real quickly here that the warning is to bring about repentance. One commentator said the message of warning to his people was not an irrevocable sentence. It was just that. It was a warning. It was to call them back. And so then he begins in verse 10 with this hope. We'll be brief on this because we're going to come back to this again. Yet the number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it should be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel should be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for a great for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Okay, now Jezreel in the name takes them back to the horrific demise, the end of the, of, the, of the kings and the bloodshed. And now he's pointing them forward. And we're going to come back to this again in chapter 2. And we're going to see the hope that God's setting forth for the people. Say to your brothers, now he turns, this is Hosea, turning to, the, turning to the, the children. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. And then we're going to see next week where he then says, now plead with your mother. So you got the picture here, you got this father, and you got these little children. And they've been left by their mother, who's out, out doing horrific things. And Hosea finds out where she is and he sends the kids to try to get her to come home. And then he's going to do some things. But that's for next week. 
All of this, a picture of, of all the machinations God goes through to care for his people even when they sin. And when they sin terribly. And when they sinned, sin over and over again. How many times will God forgive us? Aren't you glad it's not just seven times? Aren't you glad it's seven times 70? He promises something even more remarkable here. It's not just a remnant. But it's this number of children shall be like, of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured. And then he says something else. This is something that hadn't been for, for, for decades, for, 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 for centuries, actually. The children of Judah and the children of Israel should be gathered together. The two divided kingdoms, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom are going to be reunited. Now, this only points one place, folks. This only points to Christ Jesus. He's the one who unites us. He's the one who not only takes down the, the barrier between Jew and Gentile. We read about that in the book of Ephesians. But he reunites his people. So that there's not two kingdoms. There's one kingdom and it's Christ's kingdom. The head of the kingdom. The head of the church. And so we've got a glimpse here forward to Christ. In fact, Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 11. He says that after this partial hardening comes in which Israel is going to be used as an example to to cause the Gentiles to want salvation. And then God's going to save Israel. Romans 11, 26. And then let me just close this way. How does he end that wonderful chapter? After he says God's going to save all of Israel. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. That's what this passage in Hosea is pointing us to. And Paul knew it. He picks it up. So let me ask you some questions. I know longer than usual. First, do you see yourself in Gomer? Do you see yourself in Gomer? We're the wayward ones. We're the strayers. We're the ones who, who, who flirt with other gods. Are, 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 are you captive to the seductive, to the sensual curvatures of the world? It's easy, isn't it? We live in a sensual world. Do you see your need to be drawn back to God? Do you hear the call of repentance that this warning issues? If you do, that's wonderful. If you don't, you need to pray, Lord, please change my heart. 
I don't want to live like Gomer. I don't want to be out from under your mercy. I don't want to be not your people. I mean, who would want to live there? But in Christ, there's forgiveness. And so, Lord, we ask you this evening, draw us all to Christ over and over and over again. Show us our sin. Make us see that it's as horrific as Gomer's sins, but that your love is broad and wide and deep, and that you will cause us to be your people and to look like your people, not just by name, but in the beauty of our clothing, the robes of righteousness that only Christ can give us. We ask you to do this in his name. Amen.